Hey, Acquired listeners. Before this episode starts, David and I wanted to give you a heads up that the audio quality is pretty rough in the second half. We had a problem that we didn't catch until afterwards that makes it sound like a conference call with a poor connection. This stuff is important to us, and we even talked about not even releasing the episode. However, the interview content is just awesome, so we thought it'd be a shame not to share it with all of you. We apologize, and we hope you enjoy the interview. Okay. And is, uh, is video good for you? Yeah, is this a good great. angle? Is this a good angle? You look great. Is this a good angle? Are you getting my good side? <laughs> Always, David. Welcome to Season 2, Episode 1 of Acquired, the show about technology, acquisitions, and IPOs. I'm Ben Gilbert. I'm David Rosenthal. And we are your hosts. And I'm Alfred Lennon. Hey, welcome, Alfred. We're very, you very excited. The I know, I know. Too bad our titles really, uh, really do those in. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for having me on the show. Yeah, we're we're super pumped to have you, listeners. This episode is going to be about uh, about Zappos, and Alfred is one of the few people in the world uh, who can actually do this episode justice and and come on to do the show with us. We uh, in December, I mentioned that we're switching to seasons, so we can do themes and mini series across uh, across several episodes. And uh, for our first episode, we wanted to do a, a really classic acquired format, reviewing an M and A transaction. Um, and this is one of the the ones that has been at the top of our list for a very long time. So, uh, David, do you want to introduce who is? Alfred Lin. Our mystery guest, not so mystery guest. (laughs) Uh, So today, uh, Alfred is a VC at Sequoia Capital, um, where he's the co-head of their US venture business and represents Sequoia on the boards of many great companies, uh, such as Airbnb, House, DoorDash, Zipline, and many others. Um, But today, we're going to talk about his time before Sequoia, when he was the chairman and COO of Zappos. And uh, which was prior to Whole Foods, Amazon's largest acquisition ever. But my favorite part of Alfred's background, which we'll get into, was that long before Zappos, uh, when he was an undergrad at Harvard with Tony Shea, he was known as the, and I'm, I'm quoting directly from Tony here, he was known as the human trash compactor of pizza, which also it turns out is pretty relevant to the Zappos story. So <laughs> welcome, Alfred, and uh, thanks for coming on. Well, thank you for having me. I'm no longer the human trash compactor of pizza. I tried not to eat as much, <laughs> too much. <laughs> I was going to say. Given that I'm a lot older, I don't have the same uh, metabolism as I used to. It looks like a few things have changed since those <laughs> days. <laughs> All right. Well, David, this is the perfect time to talk about one of our favorite companies, Statsig. Yes. When we had VJ on ACQ2 earlier this year, they were already a pretty impressive kind of series B stage startup with a killer team and early product market fit. But what's happened since and the scale that they're operating at now is pretty wild. This is where we get lucky in being very choosy with our sponsors. Sometimes these things happen to them while we're mid-flight. Yes. So I asked them for some fun stats. In the past month, Statsig shipped actual live product experiments to over 1.2 billion end users. Now, that stat is not deduplicated across apps, so there's some overlap. But I mean, even if you cut that in half to approximate actual flesh and blood human people out there, that's almost 10% of the world's population. Crazy. Okay, so that's one. Two, Statsig now processes about 130 billion events per day. So the infrastructure that Statsig now 
has to support these data volumes is pretty wild. And it's not like they just execute these events. They then take all the data from them, run huge statistical jobs across the whole corpus to compute the experiment results that their customers are running. It is just wild. It's funny, I hadn't thought to make this comparison until right now. So you said 1.7 million events a second. If you look at the visa numbers, I just pulled up my visa notes, Visa does 8,600 transactions per second. So that's, what, 200 times as much throughput at StatSig than at Visa? On the customer side, StatSig added arguably almost all of the most important AI companies in the world this year, including Microsoft, Atlassian, Anthropic, along, of course, with regular old companies like Notion and UiPath and Lattice and Brex and friends of the show Rec Room. The team also kept shipping super fast. At the start of the year, they had just one core product. Today, they're a full-fledged product understanding platform. They have dedicated feature flagging, warehouse native experimentation, and product analytics. Yep. So if your team wants the best platform in the world for making data-driven product decisions, you should reach out. Statsig.com slash acquired. And as always, there is special white glove onboarding for all acquired listeners. Our huge thanks to Statsig. So David, now without further ado. Uh, so when most people think of Zappos, uh, they probably imagine it was started by a guy named Tony Shea, who lived in Las Vegas, loved shoes, and he probably named it Zappos because he had some lifelong obsession with weird and quirky company culture, right? Uh, impressive, David. Every word of that sentence was wrong. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Ben's right. That's not quite accurate. <laughs> Man, I really should have done my research here. Um, the founder of Zappos was Nick Swimmer. He had started the company because he went to he was looking for a particular pair of shoes, and he went to one store, couldn't find the right size. Went to another store, couldn't find the right color. Went to another store, couldn't find the right style, and went home empty-handed and decided to go Google on the internet, and he couldn't find. Uh, a place where you could buy his shoes. And so this was 1999. He thought it was a good idea to, and he was a webmaster. He thought it was a good idea to just quit his job and create a website and start Zappos. And here we are. Yep. Fortunately, he called you guys. Alfred, I, I miss the term webmaster. We got to bring that back. <laughs> well, I guess nobody really is a webmaster anymore <laughs> because we've moved on from well, websites to mobile <laughs> mobile apps. No, there's there's one webmaster. His name is Jeff Bezos. <laughs> <laughs> he is the webmaster. <laughs> he is the webmaster. Um, so let's start way back, even before then. Uh, we go back to your undergrad days at Harvard in the early 90s when you were still the human trash compactor. <laughs> and uh, so you were you were an undergrad and you had two friends, Tony Shea and Sanjay Madan, and you guys decided you would develop a business together. And Tony and Sanjay were CS majors and you were a math major, right? And so naturally you guys were going to do something very technical, very smart, but the business actually turned into a pizza business. <laughs> uh, and, and so the story, as it is told in lore, is that Tony and Sanjay lived in Quincy House at Harvard, and they managed the grill in the basement, which was sort of a late night dive bar study spot. Um, and you lived upstairs, and you would come down, you would buy pizzas from them, and then take them upstairs and resell them by the slice at a profit. <laughs> yeah, that, that's 
mostly true, but I think the the interesting part about that story is, yes, Tony and Sanjay and I were friends. Uh, we had other friends. I, we didn't really hang out all that much together. <laughs> what brought us together is, is the grill. And that is an interesting place. It was a place where lots of undergrads hung out late at night trying to get something to eat while they were working on their problem sets or write their term papers. Uh, Tony and Sanjay were actually very entrepreneurial even back then. Uh, usually what happens is the graduating seniors would sell the grill, the rights of the grill, to the upcoming seniors, so the, the graduating juniors who will, will be seniors. So they would hold the rights of the grill for one year. And because they can only operate the grill for one year, they mostly did very simple stuff like hamburgers and fries and milkshakes, which you know sounds great, but it actually doesn't have great margins. And Tony uh, had this great idea of like, if I could just buy the, the rights of the grill for two years, I can amortize the cost of having a pizza oven in there. And <laughs> pizza has great margin if you can o- overcome the cost of the oven. And so he decided that he was gonna bid for the rights for two years, and his bid was highest bid plus $1. I mean, that was a pretty courageous thing for him to do. And so that's what he did. I happened to uh, have a pretty large rooming blocking group in Quincy. And I did come downstairs, negotiate with Tony and say, (laughs) hey, I'll just buy them by the pot instead of the slice. And then I did bring it upstairs. I didn't really sell it by the slice. I just wanted my money back. Um, That's the part that is you know it's it sounded predatory but <laughs> what i was trying to do is just get my money back and the the slices were two dollars a slice downstairs i got a discount so it was maybe a dollar fifty a dollar twenty five uh when you buy it in, as a pie and the thing that is most interesting about that story is i always got two dollars even though i asked for a dollar twenty five or a dollar fifty and the reason is like today maybe not as obvious but back then you needed quarters for washing machines drying machines uh. vending machines arcade games Today you probably had, you know pay f- with that with a card or a phone, but that was important. To, it was a really interesting business lesson, which is sometimes even something like a commodity, like yeah. a quarter, a quarter is sometimes worth more than twenty five cents. I just thought that was an interesting arbitrage opportunity like story. That's awesome. You guys were delivering happiness, uh, yeah. <laughs> even back at Harvard. You get you get your slice of pizza and your quarter for laundry. Yeah, yeah. And it was it started out with lots of conversations on how to make the grill better. Tony started uh, recording movies and playing them downstairs so they would get people to hang out more to make the experience better. We we're talking about customer experience and not just like serving people food, which yes made them happy, but. How do you get people to congregate downstairs and hang out? So there was a lot of conversations about that one day. The, the, the reason Tully, Tony tells this story is because he was one day we we're calculating how much we made. And he was like, he made the calcula- calculation and said, Alfred, you actually make more per hour than I do. I'm like, come on. I like order. I call down, order, come downstairs, pick it up and take it upstairs. Yes. Yeah, all right. Fine. I make more per hour, but you make, you still make more yeah. in aggregate <laughs> because you spent more time on, on the grill. But those are the type of like geeky things that we talked about when we were in college. <laughs> and the legend is, of course, that's why you became CFO of your first company together, which was Link Exchange. Um, so after you guys all graduated, you all moved out west, yep. and Tony and Sanjay started working at Oracle as uh, developers, and you started a PhD program in statistics at Stanford. Yep. And then supposedly, right, I, I have to ask you about this. You tried to convince them to come and run the same pizza game at Stanford, right? 
No, actually, Tony was looking into <clears throat> starting a similar business. He was trying to get a, fran a Subway's franchise um, on campus. Ah, cool. Or a pizza business on campus. And I told him, well, there are plenty of pizza stores and there is a Subway's on University Avenue. So it may be a little difficult to make the economics work. But he... You know, he's always a little bit ahead of everybody else because he said, well, that's too far away. Why not on campus? And at the time, campus didn't allow third-party operators to uh, like, be there. Of course, that's changed. that's changed. Those rules have changed on, on Stanford's campus. But he was always a little bit ahead. But the, the thing that was interesting is like, well, like the internet was happening. So it was like, why don't we like think about some internet business? And Link Exchange came about as a fluke because when they started tony and sanjay were bored at oracle they would go to their weekly meetings they'd be told what to do and they would figure out how to do that work within half a day to a day or an afternoon and then they would work on their side business which was building websites for companies that would pay them and this is back when html seemed like something really hard to learn it Turns out it not to be that hard to learn, but people didn't want to learn it. So they were more than happy to code up sites for in HTML for others. And they were be paid a very handsome um, fee for creating these sites. And the sad part for them was these sites would just stand alone and they would yeah. be there'd be no traffic. Nobody would go to them. So then they sort of figured out how to link all these sites together and try to drive traffic to each other. And that was the creation of Link Exchange. Yeah, and I mean, it basically, in a lot of ways, invented you know the display advertising uh, network business that eventually becomes you know DoubleClick and Aquaniv. These become massive acquisitions from Google and Microsoft. Um, but you guys were were first in a lot of ways. We we're early. There were a bunch of uh, copycats along the way. Uh, some. That were like Hyperbanner and other banner exchanges. And then obviously DoubleClick and Aquantive, we sold a little too early before that. And then there was a next wave of these companies on the mobile. So history does yeah. repeat itself. And so Sequoia not only invested in Link Exchange and made 17x right? in 17 months, but they also invested in AdMob. And <laughs> AdMob's acquisition by Apple was much bigger than, <laughs> than Link Exchange's Link Ex acquisition. Well, if you adjust for inflation, you know, you're probably <laughs> both. <laughs> yeah. Alfred, it feels like you've said that 17x in 17 months before. I don't know, it rolled right off the tongue. <laughs> yeah, I thought, you know, that was the first time I was like, I said to Michael Moritz, who was on the board, it seemed, wow, this is a great business. <laughs> Does this happen all the time? <laughs> and he's like, yeah, the, that, that doesn't always happen. <laughs> but what I got to do is I learned a lot from Michael. He was a great mentor for me. I developed a great relationship with Sequoia and the Sequoia partners. I know how they operate. There's a lot of work that goes into venture capital that I did not appreciate at the time because it seemed like it was easy money. Yeah. But going back, if you had to rewind, um, you know, Michael was interim CEO for a period of time when we were looking for a CEO. Oh, he wow. Spent, uh, a day a week at the company. And so today when I'm sitting in this seat at Sequoia, I just remember back the success of Sequoia has a lot to do with partnering with the founders and the management teams of their companies and picking up and doing whatever to help the company succeed. Yeah, And so that's why this is, for me, a very rewarding job. That's really cool. I didn't realize that uh, Michael had actually stepped in uh, as temporary CEO. 
but as you say, so you, you sold the company after 17 months uh, to Microsoft and you and Tony decided, you know, maybe as you said, you thought the venture business was easy. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it's not. <laughs> We've talked about that a bunch on this show. You leave and you decide to raise a fund on your own. And this is essentially like today, this would be a, a pre-seed venture fund. Yeah. Back then, we raised $27 million from friends and family of Link Exchange after the liquidity event. But $27 million back then was a fairly sizable fund for seed and pre-seed. Today, yeah. it's like, not that it's like average, I would say. Yeah. And the idea was not to write a hundred thousand or two hundred thousand dollar checks, but to have like a million in on average for a concentrated portfolio. We had decided that we were going to figure out how to invest in twenty seven ish or to th really thirty companies over three years. We ended up making twenty seven investments, but it was over one year. Wow. And, and you didn't reserve anything for we didn't pro reserve anything for pro rata. So that was a learn that was a big learning experience um, of like time diversification is actually important in the in the venture business because it was a nineteen ninety nine was not a great time to to be an investor. How do you even have the deal flow to be doing two deals a month? I mean, <laughs> with that small of a fund and that few of a number of GPs, like how how does that work? Uh I I think we were just you know, we, we had a good network. We knew lots of people in the internet space. Um, and so we were primarily investing in just the internet. And so it wasn't hard to find companies to invest in. And keep in mind, you know, deal flow, the, the level of sophistication people have today thinking about companies was not the same back then, right? Like the company, any company that had a product that was working and had eyeballs, people were funding. And yeah. Mm -hmm. So uh, we did some of that too. We also made some good investments. Um, we're pretty proud of our track record at Venture Frogs. It ended up being a seven and a half to eight x fund after after fees. Wow! Uh, for a 1999 fund, I'm pretty sure that's in the top <laughs> decile, if not the top. Or I mean, it's it's uh, it's very hard. <laughs> Only the top top you know venture funds these days are seven or eight X after fees period, but to do that in 99, but it, it was the result of a lot of work that you ended up doing in the portfolio. It was a result of, we, we, in 2000 or 2001, we did, we looked at the portfolio and there were basically three sets of companies. There are like companies that we, you know, regardless of whether we help or not, they were going to go under. <laughs> And then their company is like, regardless whether we help or not, they were going to do just fine. <laughs> so that was, you guys invested in OpenTable, right? We invested in OpenTable. They were going to do just fine. Mago Music got sold to Microsoft. They were going to do just fine. We didn't have to do much work for it. There was a company that was in the web, the WAP space. It was called Myable. They were trying to create my pages for, for WAP phones. Imagine like, can't even imagine looking at these small screens <laughs> and why you, you would put a my page on that. But anyway, they, they were... They were building that. That got sold to um, phone.com, which got merged with software.com to create open wave systems. So that did fine. There, there are a bunch of companies that did fine regardless of whether we helped them or not. And then, the, you know, like I said, the first class was like most of these companies were just going to go under regardless of whether we helped them or not. Um, and then there were two companies we felt like if we helped, we could make a lot of impact in those companies. And those two companies were Tommy Networks and Zappos. So did you and Tony sit down and say like, okay, let's draw straws Who's yeah, and, and also on this, how do you determine if a company is at a place where 
if you apply high leverage, it makes an impact or not? Like how do they, are there certain types of business models or certain places where you have domain expertise where you're like, yep, if we apply here, it can, it can go the distance or how do you figure that out? I think when you like, you sort of step back, you kind of think about whether the investment thesis was right or wrong. You, and then you, you kind of know that, you know, you got this wrong. It's not going to work. Here are the reasons why it's not going to work. There's, this might be an interesting. Pro- well, we, you know, at Sequoia, we've over the years like created these buckets. Like sometimes, you have a feature, it's not a product, or you have a product, but it's not a, it's not a company. Yep. And I didn't have those like sort of frameworks back then, but it was pretty clear. Like, yeah, this is a nice tool, and people will use it, but you can't really build any meaningful business or user base on top of it. And so then you're like, okay, well, maybe they'll pivot to something different, but we're not in the business of helping them think about pivoting to another business that they're not passionate about. You know, that's one set of like, well, we can't really help companies where they're, they're not really a company or a product. They're really a feature. And there are a set of like, I think founders who are resistant to change. And so if they don't really want our advice, that's difficult to sort of influence. Um, and then there are just a set of things you just got wrong about the business or the business model and the underlying assumptions has proven to be the, the opposite of what you assumed. Yeah. Um, and so the, those are the conclusions. And then unfortunately, there is also a class of things where maybe the product is great and the underlying, underlying assumptions are right and the founders will listen and work hard, but it can't raise money for whatever reason, whether the story is not good, you can work on the story, you can, but for whatever reason, it can't get the capital that it needs to get. And what's interesting, side. Zappos kind of fit into that bucket, yeah. right? Like the business was good. It was growing. So you guys invested in 99, uh, Nick had founded the business, just had a business plan. It was, it was initially called shoesite.com, right? Yep. Which still redirects to Zappos if you go there. Um, and, uh, and so you guys invest and and then it grows pretty nicely. I think year 2000, first full year, it does about 1.6 million in revenue. Uh, in 2001, you do over 8 million in revenue, but everybody was, you know, it was nuclear winter. There'd been pets.com and eToys. Nobody wanted to fund it, right? But the business was growing. The business was growing it, and it was actually, one thing that was different about Zappos, even back then was it was break even. Um, most e-commerce companies will not break even. Even today, we accept that they won't be break even for the first few years. Back then, too, a lot of companies like Pets.com didn't weren't breaking even. And I think the whole e-commerce category was just dead to all investors in 2000, 2001, 2002. And you know, so even for Sequoia Investing, Sequoia invested, in, I think, in 2005. Yep. And so it took some time for a very toxic space to turn around, uh, even when you have a good business. And so I attribute some of Zappos' success. There's a lot of like cool, feel good stuff in Tony's book, but there are two things that I think I attribute to um, that is not told about very much in, in the founder lore because it's not a happy story. But the lack of money is actually one of the things that sort of made Zappos successful. It, yeah. Very early on, it had to figure out how to acquire customers in a way that is uh, unit positive on the first order. Yeah. See, and you guys were, were unit positive on the first order. I mean, that's yes. not an easy thing to do ever, no. particularly at that moment. The company only raised $10 million of primary capital. And yes, it raised more money from Sequoia for secondaries. And yes, it had debt. And yes, it had 
Um, it sort of leveraged relationships to get vendor credit. All of those things that are written in Tony's books, those were all true. But primary capital was about $10 million. And I don't think you can imagine today a e-commerce company raising $10 million and becoming a billion-dollar company over time. You'd probably think it's in the hundreds of millions of dollars, maybe $100 million or $200 million. And, and Zappos did burn $100 million of free cash flow. It was just smart about how it did it. Yeah. It did it from, from vendor relationships, extending the terms from net 30 to net 90 over time. We didn't do it immediately. We got a line of credit that we did need to use for a short period of time to get inventory before we sold it. So we had to understand our cash conversion cycle very, very well. Was it easier to acquire at scale those days? Like when you think about today, it's in many ways expensive to acquire from Facebook and Google, but then you were educating people about the whole category of, of e-commerce, particularly in these new niches they had never seen before. So, I mean, can you talk about acquisition costs then versus acquisition costs now? Yeah, I think that's a great question about acquisition. It, you know, everybody seems to think, well, yeah, you had it easy because Google was a lot cheaper back then. Well, the it, it wasn't obvious that Google was a place to, yeah, right. to actually acquire. It probably wasn't sending you that much traffic. Well, no, but it, it, so like back then, there was a lot of acquisition channels that just didn't work. It's not like, and we tried all of them. There was, um, there was Yahoo banner ads, there was MSM banner ads. There's like, so there's a whole banner advertising category. Then there was like trying to buy placement at home plate at Pac Bell. You know, we got all of like three customers. From that. <laughs> um, did you guys do a, uh, an AOL uh, sponsored channel? We probably well? did an AOL sponsored channel for a short period of time. I, I don't particularly <laughs> remember, but yes, we spent money on AOL. So, you know, when you say, oh yeah, you know, you had it easy because you had Google and it was cheap and it was converting well. Yeah, that was true, but we discovered that. And then when we, as soon as we discovered it, it wasn't like there was no competition out there. As soon as we discovered, oh yeah, it's really cool. You can bid on shoes and it actually sends us traffic and it converts pretty well. Other people started bidding on shoes. So we had to keep going further and further and further and further down the long tail of keywords. This is all like things that you now think about. Yeah. And, uh, but like we had to do that. We had to do SEO. We had to figure out SEO optimization. Those were not things that you know, there was a book about, you know, you were AB testing this stuff all the time. Um, I would say back then Google was not obvious. We did that. There was doing print ads and print ads were actually pretty good. And when you did print ads with, that were co-branded with Stuart Weitzman or with Clark's, depending on the shoes that you're selling, it actually were pretty effective. And then we got, we figured out a way for Stuart Weitzman to pay for that because it was co-branded. <laughs> it's like, well, you put up Stuart Weitzman ads and they don't know where to buy it. So why don't you put www.zappos.com at the bottom for your, for your ads? And so a bit of negotiation. Yeah. So those are clever things that you, you had to sort of do. As soon as we start doing that, competitors start doing that. Um, they were called co-op dollars or yeah. money that were available. And this is something preparing for this. You, you've talked a lot about this all this stuff was really hard and you get like nobody, if you had slid a business plan across the table as Sequoia Capital that you were going to do this, they'd probably be like, you're going to do print ads, right? But like, because you had to do it, you had this muscle that nobody else had. And then when Amazon came and tried to compete with you, they didn't know how to do this stuff, right? Uh, yeah, I think they, you know, it, nothing, nothing in the consumer business is completely proprietary. You could try to create these modes along the way, but Consumer business modes are like little by little. You know, you yeah. add, you, you make things a little bit more, 
you know, user friendly. You make it a little bit cheaper for you to acquire customers. These are all like getting up every single day and figuring out how to do something 1% better than the day before. And you try to make that additive. And if, if you're really good, you try to make those 1% compound. And that's the way you sort of get ahead. Um, and when Amazon tried it, there were other competitors before Amazon, but I, I would say one of the other things back to, you know, the one sort of thing that people don't talk about is not having too much money was actually a good thing for Zappos. Not having too many competitors at the beginning was also yeah. a good thing for Zappos. Yeah, that's calling it the herd, right? Yeah, so like in 1999, there were competitors. By 2000, 2001, most of the competitors like died down and some of the competitors that did exist were pretty weak. And, you know, the competitor that got a lot of money was Nordstromshoes.com. I got 20 million, Zappos got funded with 2 million. They soon, you know, didn't go anywhere because they had too much money. And five years in, that's when the comp competition started heating up. Yeah. But I, I do think that it is important for founders to know that nothing destroys value faster than irrational competitors. Yeah. And so if we had irrational competitors very, very early on for a long, sustained period of time, I'm not sure Zappos would have been around. But being able to learn a lot of these lessons over some period of time and there's room to make mistakes and to experiment and to figure out the security bin and putting the ads in the security bin was yeah, right. actually pretty effective and actually pretty cheap because it was never done before. Yep. Um, this is uh, uh, Brad Stone writes about this in the Everything Store that you guys put ads on, and uh, when you're going through security uh, to check in at the at the airport, you put Zappos ads where you had to put your shoes, which yeah. is just brilliant. And apparently, which is now like an ad unit, like yeah. that's a thing now. <laughs> yeah, and now it's very competitive. So when you say like, oh yeah, you could acquire users for cheap, sure, but you have to go discover these yeah. things. Um, this company. Um, had developed this business plan in 1999. They were all ready to go, and then September 11th happened, and for they were still like working with the TSA for a long period of time to get it done. And yeah. so by the time they were ready and they were capable of doing this, they were soon going to be out of money. So they were willing to sell those. <laughs> you guys are the only very, buyers. Very cheap. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so it actually was a third party who. Did those ad units interesting? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, let's let's rewind a little bit here. So we, we talked about venture frogs. So at some point, Alfred, you went to tell me, and Tony went. It sounds like not as CEO, but it's to sort of join the the leadership team at at Zappos. Can you can you take us from there a little bit on on how Tony became CEO and how you found your way to Zappos? Sure. So I think we were both trying to just help the companies that we thought we could help and. Back to, you know, Tony thought that he could help Zappos um, and he was willing to incubate the company in, you know, in, in the loft and Venture Frogs incubator. And then I had long-standing relationship with Hadi Partovi and Ali Partovi. And so Hadi was one of the founders of Tell Me and he was telling me how much he was, he, they were spending. And I'm like, wait, you raised $265 million and you're burning $60 million a year. That sounds crazy for a zero <laughs> revenue company. Meanwhile, like, Zappos can't too. raise any money. <laughs> it's like night and day. I'm like, well, Zappos can't, whatever. Just, Tony, just grow the business. Don't spend it. Don't spend any money just like it is today. Yeah. Just grow it at break even. You're fine. You can't raise any money anyway. Here, this other company raises $265 million and is losing $60 million a year. I'm like, holy shit. So I, you I, actually no, I was pretty sure with a $60 million loss, you can, find, you can narrow that to something lower than that. <laughs> you can add value that way. Um, and so Tony um, and Tony really liked the notion of trying to figure out to take a business from commodity business and 
layer on service. He had this whole thesis that most commodity businesses are commodity businesses because they don't layer on service. Yep. And and so he went to Zappos first. Uh, and for Tell Me, I just thought my financial skills were were going to be valued. It Tell Me turned out to be one one of the first SaaS computing mm. uh, cloud computing companies. Yep. It just wasn't. We had to build our own cloud. Yeah. Um, and you know we turned that company from not having any revenue, having too many people, having going through two, two and a half rounds of layoffs. Um, the notion of the consumer business was that you can sell advertising as well. Like advertising units on Google are ninety percent gross margin on this because of the infrastructure was going to be at best fifty percent gross margin. It's going to make it very hard to work. Yeah. Uh, so we pivoted to the enterprise business. Had to sort of change the mindset of the company. Mike McHugh did a great job sort of shifting that. Um, and we built an enterprise business um, through oh. a lot of pivoting. I didn't realize Mike, so Mike's the founder and CEO of Flipboard, Flipboard now, right? Yes. Wow, I didn't realize he was at, uh, at Tell Me. Wow. Yeah. Um, and so after um, Tell Me was in good shape, I, I joined Zappos. So 2005, yeah, you came over to Zappos. You just raised the round from Sequoia. Yeah. And uh, shortly after you joined, right, Tony gets an email from Jeff Bezos. Uh, saying he that Jeff is going to be in Las Vegas and wants to meet you guys. <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> what what were you guys thinking when you got that? Uh, I don't know. I just thought it was like probably should take the meeting. It'd be cool to see if there's some partnership that we could do together. We weren't thinking that he was coming down to buy the company at all. Um, so you brought back to pizza. You brought two pizzas to the meeting, right? Well, he's famously known for his two pizza teams, so we thought we'd bring two pizzas. Um, funny enough, nobody I don't think anybody ate the pizza. <laughs> it wasn't that kind of meeting. It wasn't a it wasn't a yeah, it wasn't a eat the pizza. <laughs> Was Amazon in the shoe market at this point? Like were they a competitor? I don't I I think they were like in the market to some not in a big degree, but in a small one. And the suppliers, the, the shoe manufacturers, were pretty scared of Amazon, right? Because they were worried that Amazon would discount their merchandise below MSRP. The, 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 the just go back, like back then, they were scared of anybody in the internet. They, <laughs> not, not scared in the way that you're thinking about, like, these people are going to be dominant, they're going to take our business. They were scared because the, they thought all internet businesses were fly-by-night businesses, and that consumers <laughs> would never... Money, go, not your business. Yeah, they were like, I mean, consumers would never buy shoes on the internet. You got, you need, we need a shoe salesman. It's like the Silk Road. Yeah. You can't. We need a shoe yeah. salesman to come and talk to the customer, measure her feet or his feet, and bring out, like, three pairs and try to upsell them another pair that they don't really want. I'm like, okay, whatever. <laughs> so, so as you know, like originally the idea for Zappos was to be completely drop ship. And yep, over yep. time, just to get even some of these brands to sell to us, we had to like get more, get inventory. Uh, we had to buy the inventory. So part of, I was going to ask about that. So you, when you started, it was drop ship. So the manufacturers would send the shoes directly to the customers. You wouldn't have to take inventory. You convert to a retailer model. Part of that, I imagine, was to provide better customer service. Uh, yeah, because I think the brands are not set up to be direct-to-consumer businesses. So yep. they don't take the time to think about what a direct-to-consumer business needs. And so the packaging wasn't perfect. They were sending packaging slips like they would send to a store as opposed to a consumer. The boxes were not branded. Mm -hmm. They didn't have exact inventory because that's not actually as important um, to when you're, sell you're sort of distributing to a store. So they were um, they were providing a subpar experience, and we took over the experience because we felt like we wanted to provide ninety nine point nine percent accuracy on inventory, as an example. Yeah. And we wanted to provide a nice and happy and joyful packing slip, as opposed to a 
grid yeah. uh, with numbers. <laughs> uh, but part of it, it sounds like also was just getting there. Like you had to buy the inventory or else they weren't going to trust you to sell it. Yeah. And that's where most of the use of capital went, which yeah. is buying inventory. So when you go into this meeting with, with Amazon, what's the result of that? Do you guys walk away feeling like, well, they're, they're about to come after us? Uh, I mean, I, I think it was a very happy meeting. From what I remember, it, it was a long time ago, so maybe I'm not remembering correctly, but yeah. I think we didn't really, it was hinted at, maybe we should join forces, and we hinted back, we're not quite ready to sell. Uh, and the meeting kind of wrapped up pretty quickly. We um, we suggested we do a partnership, and I think the response back was rightful, which is like partnerships don't tend to work. Yeah when you have disparate, like hugely disparate sizes of companies. And so we went on our way and um, I don't think we were thinking that they would, we always thought they were going to come after us. We wasn't thinking that they would immediately, well, in a few years, launch Endless.com. Yeah, I think so it was the next year. They, they launched Endless.com, which is basically a clone of Zappos. Uh, they spent $30 million developing it. And when they launch, it has free overnight shipping. Uh, which is super clear. I mean, I'm sure it was obvious to you guys, they were losing money on every order. You guys worked so hard to be profitable. And they're just, as you say, you know, it's like lots of capital coming into the space and killing your economics. <laughs> how did you react to that? Well, um, the only way you can react is like figure out how what you want to match that and how you differentiate against that. Right. So, two, so those are the two conversations. We had fortunately figured out how, we had been upgrading shipping along the way. So over the years, we had sort of gotten people from, on average, five-day uh, delivery. We'd, we'd always say five to seven days and deliver it in five days, and then four, and then three, then two. We hadn't gone to overnight yet. And so it wasn't that big of a leap hmm. to go from two to one. It was a big, you know, for that time, it was a big dollar difference shift. We'd go from profitable to, to just break even again. And so it was a big, like, decision to do that. And we were still focused on making sure we had the largest selection and we had the best vendor relationships and, and things like that that we thought were still differentiated against Endless. So we went to free shipping both ways. We went to free overnight shipping. They went from free overnight shipping to, because discounting um, on the shoes in season is not thought of as positive by the industry and they didn't want to hurt their own sort of ability to get inventory they said and by yes. not thought up as, as positive you mean like the brands would stop retailing through them if they were selling below msrp right yeah they can't change they can't ask you to change the price but they can stop selling to you um mm -hmm. like okay well if you're going to discount before the season ends we're gonna not ha let you access to the to more right. inventory they want them to cheap so the so amazon's very clever i thought this was very clever it's like Instead of discounting their shoes, they said minus five dollars for or five dollars back for overnight shipping. It's like <laughs> we'll pay you to send we'll it to you, you overnight. To send it to you overnight. I'm like, wow, that's really clever. Coming to Prime subscriptions next year. <laughs> wow. So despite all this, I'm, I'm wondering, you guys continued to grow. In 2007, you did 840 million in revenue. Um, was there an element of like I'm thinking of you know when when Facebook cloned Snapchat and released Poke and it was like the best thing that ever happened to Snapchat? Like, did Amazon do category development from you? Like, did you see? I'm sure they were spending a lot of marketing. Did you see any bleed over of that into Zappos? I think when you're in a one of the advantages of being in a growing market where the consumer trends are in your advantage is that for a period of time, um, it's 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 a win-win situation for the consumer and those involved. Um, meaning we were growing. Amazon was definitely growing, um, and we didn't really see like 
mass competition. Like we weren't losing, we didn't feel like we were losing our loyal customers to Zappos. We weren't, uh, we didn't need to acquire Amazon shoe customers to make our business work. There were enough customers out yeah. there to go acquire. You get the large enough size that will at some point not be true. Yeah. Um, and so, if you end up being in a great situation where you're one of you're one of the only kind of company in your category class and you have a natural monopoly, that's great. But if you don't and you're able to sort of still have a large business and you're one of many, you can still be a valuable business. So that happens. You guys are both growing through kind of 05 to 08. Then financial crash happens. Yeah. Zappos endures one financial crisis, so may as well stick around for the next one. Well, if you want to build a long, enduring company, you're going to endure a lot more than just one or two financial crises. (laughs) So, um, yeah, the financial crisis was interesting because I think we saw glimpses of the slowdown happening the year before the financial crisis. And looking back, it's easier to say that. Um, Back then, obviously, we didn't realize it. Do do you mean in in raising capital or in in people buying shoes and, you know, getting somehow more expensive to get people to do that? Consumer spend was was more tepid. Hmm. And we would see consumer confidence coming down faster than the Fed or whatever, you know, could could see it, I think. Hmm. Anyway, so... Uh, financial crisis was interesting because the bi- our business is still growing. I think the cons- we had a hundred million dollar line of credit, of which we were only using thirty or forty million of it. it wasn't like oh, we were wow. overextended. We, so it wasn't you didn't bust your covenants on the on the credit line. No, but the banks couldn't post ah, the, the money. They're like, wait, the we, have on contra- we have this contract. It was like, well, we're gonna. We've been told to like, we we have a liquidity crunch. We need to like we're all black, some of the liquidity. And that was a little disappointing. Huh. Wow. Yeah, I mean, that's not how lines of credit work. Well, you should read all the terms and conditions. Yeah, right. <laughs> when it's not your money, it's, it's yeah, not we money. had we had some technical issues where they we had verbal agreements that we would extend from shoes to all. They would lend against shoes to handbags to apparel, and they had it had been agreed upon verbally, but... The extension went from shoes to handbags, but not all the way to apparel. So uh, they, they started saying, well, we're not going to lend against apparel. There are ways for them to sort of get out of the contract. Mm-hmm. Um, it was also what was more um, hmm. painful was conversations with employees. Some of them had, you know, lost their home. Right. And Vegas was particularly hard hit by Vegas the housing crisis. Vegas so. housing prices fell 50% um, wow. or more. Um, some some estimates, but um, so some people lost their homes. They um, they said, "Well, the only thing that's of value in my portfolio is my my stock options." And it's like, whoa! <laughs> like I thought I had a big weight running a business. Wow. So I mean, the conversations were obviously like we loved running the company, and we thought we could continue to keep running the company, and there was no reason to sell except for the fact the company had existed for almost 10 years. Some people needed liquidity. I had a senior member of the team needing to sell his Zappos stock at a fairly large discount during that time just to be able to post uh, his, his mortgage his payment. Mortgage payments, wow. And and part and I was like, what what do you mean? Like you I didn't I thought you were renting. I was like, Well, I am renting, but the land the sort of landlord is gonna lose his house. So uh, I don't wanna move, I don't just want my family, so I'm gonna come up with the money to like buy the house. And it's gonna be at a discount. So yes, I'm selling my stock at a discount, but I'm buying the house at a discount too. So he felt 
a little bit about that, but I was like, you know, you're selling this at like probably, a, you know, 25% of the value that you, oh my goodness. you would get, um, if you just wait this out yeah. and he's like, well, I need the cash now. Wow. And so those kind of those types of conversations are much harder. Um, hmm. And so we were thinking about what's the right thing for all shareholders. And look, I mean, we can always like think about like if Zappos had been public, you know, gone public because it could build a big enough business, would it be value today? And it's probably not. You know, when when I left, the business was doing 1.6 billion in gross sales. I don't know what the numbers are today. I'm sure it's well north of that. Yeah. Uh, and when I left, it was profitable. And so I'm sure it could be a public company, but Tony couldn't wouldn't be working on the downtown yeah. project and doing what he loves to do. Doing delivering happiness. And I wouldn't be here doing what I love to do. So. Yeah. Well, now, what, so so when the deal happens, uh, it's announced summer of 2009, Amazon's going to acquire Zappos for $1.2 billion uh, in stock. How did the conversation go about stock? And um, I mean, that was the best thing that you guys probably ever did financially, right? Yeah. So so that what's the line success has many fathers yeah many people claim to have been the person who like, but you were negotiating the deal right negotiated the stock point like tony tony was, like push says he pushed for stock <laughs> mike Moore says he pushed for stock <laughs> you know what actually everybody pushed for stock because we knew that coming out of a financial crisis everybody's stock was depreciated undervalued right yeah. so like i think amazon was trading at like 50 or 60 bucks a share at this point it was trading at, at now you're it, the day closed. It was trading at 118. Okay. okay. So the the stock price today is more than 10 times what. But uh, but what but who could remember? You know, yeah. <laughs> who could remember exactly what it was trading? <laughs> no, I, I didn't. It was 118 and 23 cents. I think since so something to that effect. Oh my goodness. Um, and so it started out with all cash because Amazon had not done many yeah. transactions with stock, uh, and we said we won't do this. To, we're happy with the price. We just won't do this deal unless it's in stock. Oh. It should like. In corporate finance, it shouldn't matter, right? Right, right. because you can, the acquirer can decide to give stock and buy back the stock. The acquirer, you know, so it, it shouldn't matter to the acquirer. It does acquire, it does matter to the company because all stock transactions are tax deferred because you don't pay taxes until you sell the stock. Whereas if you get cash, all cash, you need to pay the taxes as soon as you get the cash. And I think there, there are some people with different views about Amazon stock and some people sold, some people held, some people did half and half. Yeah. So in my view, in mergers, I think acquirers should be more lenient about doing stock transactions because it shouldn't, it shouldn't be any different for them. Um, unless you have a view of the value of your own stock, which differs from the market. <laughs> right. But you can always, you can always buy back, you can always yeah. sell it. It's true. Um, that's hmm. true. What one thing, and then we'll move on to acquisition category. But but I'm really curious. I mean, you did this, and it was announced from day one. There's this amazing video. We'll oh link to in the God. show notes. It is the best. <laughs> this is so incredible. Bezos records a video to all Zappos employees. It's about a 10 minute video. It's on YouTube about everything that he's learned, knowledge that he wants to impart to Zappos. It's it's just wonderful. It's it's in this like classic for listeners who haven't seen it. You got to go watch this video. It's in the classic Jeff Bezos style of like way oversimplifying everything, being like salt of the earth. Like I'm just Jeff in my jeans, and you know he, he has he has a what not even a whiteboard like you know the paper easels that you flip <laughs> and he writes in marker the four main lessons he learned at Amazon. Anyway, though, but the point is the when it's announced from day one, Zappos is going to remain fully independent, be a wholly owned subsidiary. 
that was pretty novel for the time. I mean, now, like, this is the playbook that Facebook runs and others with acquisitions. Uh, how did those discussions go? Yeah, I think Amazon has always been uh, pressing on this front. It, it wasn't the first acquisition that they've done that was like this. I think Alexa was left yep. independent. So it was Audible IMDb too. and Audible. And so we weren't the first acquisition. Um, there are obviously situations when you acquire the company and you want it integrated. I think it makes sense when it's an aqua hire. It makes sense when it's a feature as part of a overall product somewhere. When you have a whole business, uh, I think it really does make sense to run it independently unless you can find a good reason why you should integrate. Decentral centralization has its costs, yeah. um, and so I, I think I think decentralization has its costs too. But you're more likely to. In my opinion, decentralized organizations are more innovative because they don't have to like bubble everything up. Yeah. There's not a central decision maker, um, so decentralized ecosystems are more innovative. And you see, if you want to com have a comparison, it'd be like a large company versus a startup ecosystem. Um, that's why we have a job <laughs> here at Sequoia. Like we believe the decentralized ecosystem and the innovation of entrepreneurs when they don't have to. And I think the companies that are larger have a harder time innovating because they're centralized. Yeah. Um, and so the conversations were pretty natural. The questions were about what kind of what's the management structure. And so there was the management structure was basically our board at Zappos would be replaced by a board that was. Now full an Amazon board, yeah, an Amazon board. Cool, um, and and I think it still exists that way today. Hmm. I'm curious, you know, when when they approached you about about buying the company, what were sort of the the main cited reasons? Like, was it we just think you have a good business and we want to pour additional capital into it for this business line to grow? Was it we want to learn from this and figure out how to spread the Amazon DNA or the the um, Zappos DNA around Amazon? I mean, why'd they do it? I think the you know you should ask them, but in the line, in, there's a line in the video that you were referencing where Jeff Bezos said, "I, I get knee weeks when I see customer obsessed companies," yeah. and he really understood that like Zappos was really customer obsessed, and I do think that um, for all the sort of bizarre differences between Amazon and Zappos, that is one thing that both companies share a lot in common. And maybe we do customer obsession differently. We have a different style of doing customer obsession at Zappos versus Amazon. Mm -hmm. But both companies, I think, learned a lot from each other, even during the due diligence process of how we think about things. And so they were surprised that we didn't, we like, we said we don't measure, for example, call times. Hmm. Well, it's not that we don't measure call times for an individual agent. You can't hold an individual agent to a particular call because you don't know what that call situation is like but you can look at the efficiency of the team yeah. and when you mm -hmm. talk about the efficiency of the team it's not you like stand on the phone two seconds longer than you should have it's more of a let's collaborate like yeah. our team is not efficient compared to all these other teams yeah and that's how we did it we weren't measuring every single and and so they're like okay well you're not actually like you say these things like you don't measure the stuff you measure <laughs> it just slightly in different ways and the way we were trying to measure it was to try to get collective intelligence of the team and trying to make better decisions. We want to thank our longtime friend of the show, Vanta, the leading trust management platform. Vanta, of course, automates your security reviews and compliance efforts. So frameworks like SOC 2, ISO 27001, GDPR, and HIPAA compliance and monitoring Vanta takes care of these otherwise incredibly time and resource draining efforts for your organization and makes them fast and simple. Yep, Vanta is the perfect example of the quote that we talk about all the time here on Acquired. 
Jeff Bezos, his idea that a company should only focus on what actually makes your beer taste better, i.e. spend your time and resources only on what's actually going to move the needle for your product and your customers and outsource everything else that doesn't. Every company needs compliance and trust with their vendors and customers. It plays a major role in enabling revenue because customers and partners demand it, but yet it adds zero flavor to your actual product. Vanta takes care of all of it for you. No more spreadsheets, no fragmented tools, no manual reviews to cobble together your security and compliance requirements. It is one single software pane of glass that connects to all of your services via APIs and eliminates countless hours of work for your organization. There are now AI capabilities to make this even more powerful, and they even integrate with over 300 external tools. Plus, they let customers build private integrations with their internal systems. And perhaps most importantly, your security reviews are now real-time instead of static, so you can monitor and share with your customers and partners to give them added confidence. So whether you're a startup or a large enterprise and your company is ready to automate compliance and streamline security reviews like Vanta's 7,000 customers around the globe and go back to making your beer taste better, head on over to vanta.com acquired and just tell them that Ben and David sent you. And thanks to friend of the show, Christina, Vanta's CEO, all acquired listeners get $1,000 of free credit. Vanta.com slash acquired. So the next segment we do on the show is acquisition category, and we assign a category to the acquisition. And to me, it's pretty obvious this is a business line that Amazon acquired. Uh, keep it as a separate company. Um, you know, it's not just a product that's being integrated into Amazon. But I think this is really interesting. Like the this was the point I wanted to make. And the cultures, even though it's, you know, as Brad Stone said, and you quoted, like it's Zappos was a bizarro world version of Amazon. But the core values were basically the same. Be frugal, be customer obsessed, decentralized decision making. It's it's like such a good fit when it comes to culture, even though it seems on the surface that it wouldn't be. Yeah, I think that's why um, the acquisition was considered a success. And I don't think it was an easy acquisition at the time because it was the largest acquisition at the time. Now, it pales in comparison today to Whole Foods, but hey, it's 10 years later, (laughs) just for inflation. Um, um, Numbers only, acquisitions and numbers only get larger, right? So um, it was a business line that they acquired. I think they they also were uh, very interested to learn about some of the things that we built related to merchandising. Uh, mm-hmm. How did we get so good at getting the right product in the right quantities at the right times with less than stellar technology? It wasn't, yeah. we weren't using AI. Or yeah, were you guys using Kiva or? We were also using Kiva. Okay, and um, that was how Kiva got on the radar screen of Amazon, right? Kiva was, it was funny, so I'll tie this all the way back to Sequoia. Rulak Boyta sent me the business plan of Kiva, asked me for my opinion. Akiva came from WebN, which Michael Moritz was on the board of. Michael right? Moritz was on the board of um, WebN. WebN did not work well, <laughs> work out well. They had been using, they had been used, oh, if you wanted to go all the way back, they had been using a, a carousel system. I won't name the vendor. Um, we ended up using that carousel system and the same exact vendor. <laughs> it was my first board meeting, and I got ripped into shreds <laughs> because we were saying that this was going to work, et cetera. By so Michael? By Michael, <laughs> and then also by Michael Marks, who, you know, obviously founder and CEO of Flextronics, and so he knew a little bit about <laughs> operations. I was like, okay, all right, well, we need something different. Um, anyway, so that happened. And so Mick, who was at uh, Webvan noticed how inefficient most of the systems were, so he went on to create Kiva systems. Um, I had, I didn't know that connection, so thanks for reminding me. But um, at the time, 
So I got the business plan from for Kiva from Bruloff asking me what I thought about it. It's like, oh, interesting idea, but probably too hard to rip out a whole set up uh, distribution center. Maybe for a new distribution center, we yeah. might use it, but not for our one already set up. We're going to rip out a racking, et cetera, et cetera. So as a startup, you kind of move pretty quickly to your next distribution center. So we did try Kiva, and it worked well. And then eventually, it took over all of our distribution centers. Wow. When, when Amazon was doing diligence on, on us, they really thought they were going to rip out Kiva from our distribution centers because they thought it was not going to work. Hmm. And I said, why? And they said, well, you know, your spike in December or our spike in December is order is an order of magnitude higher than the rest of the year. Mm. So you're paying for idle robots that are going to sit around for most of the year. So that can't be efficient. It turned out it's still efficient because <laughs> Uh, you can get into much larger distribution centers. You can zip things around, have people work on one end, and have machines move certain things around in another. So a few years later, after they observed this, they bought the acquired Kiva. Yeah. yeah, and now I don't think it's in all Amazon warehouses yet, but certainly all new ones. And I think they've been retrofitting old ones. I think there was some public statement that they have like hundred, maybe on the order of two hundred thousand or three hundred thousand Kiva robots. Wow. That's awesome. All thanks to Zappos. Well, it's not just Zappos. I mean, diapers also use them, yeah. and so they acquired diapers.com. So it, it was it was a it was more and more evidence that this was going to work. So there was technology that there was technology that they 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 bought as well. So we've decided it's a business line. Amazon's got a competing business line that's doing really well. Like Amazon's in-house shoe business is is according to all these external research reports, you know, really crushing it. So why not pour all the investment that they're putting into their own in-house thing into Zappos and and you know were they for a time and have have does it feel like they've shifted away to you? No, I think the the shoe business as a whole, whether it's on Amazon's site or on Zappos site, has been growing really well um, for both. And so it's not an either or. I think if if you sort of used our way of like our we we talk about the power of and not not about trade offs and I think Amazon also likes and versus or and mm-hmm. so why not have why not grow your own business and own uh, your your biggest competitor uh, at the same time if you can pull that off and they did. Hmm. Yeah. I'm curious, kind of on that front, did anybody else ever seriously attempt to buy the company besides Amazon? Would you guys have sold to anyone else? I don't think anybody was anything. Anybody else was serious. I don't think we would have sold to anyone else. And it's hard to imagine anyone else would have like let you guys keep doing this stuff. <laughs> well, I think Walmart has shown that they'd be willing to buy companies and keep them independent. So, well, now, but now, yeah, two thousand eight, two thousand nine, harder to sort of conceive. But I think, I think today there are plenty of competitors. So, like, you know, could Zappos have remained independent, gone public, and then bought by someone else? It's all possible. I try not to think about like all the possibilities because you only have one life to live. You don't get to rewind. You <laughs> You're a little to, busy on other stuff these you days. You don't get too. to A/B test your life, so get to move on. That's okay. We'll we'll speculate wildly about it on this show instead. <laughs> um, tech themes, yeah. So uh, we've talked about a bunch of them. There's one that we didn't. Um, it was part of the sort of story in Venture Frogs, and there's this great tidbit about um, the initial phone call from Nick to Tony, sort of pitching about um, ShoeSite.com, and Tony almost deleted it, but decided not to. 
even though he sort of thought it was a bad idea, like, you know, who's going to try on, who's going to order shoes before they can't try them on. But, you know, Nick had this tidbit in there that it's a $40 billion market and 5% of that is already being sold by paper mail order catalogs. And it reminded me so much of a, of a Sequoia investment thesis that, you know, we invest in, in markets, not ideas. And we invest in, you know, markets over founders in, in, in many ways. And I think that there's something really powerful to big companies get created in big markets and if it doesn't matter how incredible of a widget you make in uh, in a small market, it's just not going to become a behemoth. Yeah, I would. I think you're you're right that markets are large markets are very very important. I would just say that we have learned over time that founders and markets go hand in hand. It's not like you can't you can't like invest in a big market and have the wrong founder in place or the wrong management team. The, the people around the company. Has it has to all work, and so in some ways, I would say we invest in companies mm-hmm. and not ideas. We invest in companies and not products. We invest in companies, not features. And mm-hmm. the company consists of the team and the mm-hmm. problem you're solving, the innovation you're bringing, and also the market that you're attacking, and 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 also the go-to market and all mm-hmm. those things. Right. And no, on day one, do you have all those things? No, you don't. But you have to sort of envision uh, all of this, and why will this be an interesting company? Uh, in five, 10, 15 years. And you can't envision that or you can you don't feel like the pieces come together or you don't know where the other pieces that you need can come from. It makes it very, very hard to build a company. Yeah, yeah. My, my thing that I was gonna put out there that I, I thought we were gonna cover along the way, but I actually don't think we did is, um, well, Ben, you mentioned a little bit, but just how much this story reminds me of the Stitch Fix story as well. And you know, even down to, you guys hired, it was the first hire at Zappos, Fred Mossler, uh, yes. and reminds me of um, you know, one of the first hires at Stitch Fix was Mike Smith from Walmart. You're bringing that DNA from the industry uh, into understanding, you know, to this new paradigm of the industry, but from the old world too, and somebody who can bridge that gap. But one of the things we talked about on the Stitch Fix episode was this idea in founding a company or investing that like, it's not enough to be right about something. You need to be right and have it be non-consensus that you're right. And like, you know, Tony almost deleted the voicemail, right? Because who's going to buy shoes online? Like, it seems like a dumb idea. Just like Stitch Fix, you know, on the surface back in the day probably seemed like a dumb idea. But when you dig into the market, it actually isn't. Um, I'm curious, like, how much you guys thought about that along the way? Yeah, so Katrina has done an extraordinary job at uh, Stitch Fix. So uh, I think kudos to her. I, I think going back to the comment you made about uh, right and be non-consensus. I think that's part of what we we're talking about. Where if it's non-consensus, you will not tr- attract a ton of attention, mm-hmm. and you will not attract a ton of competitors. And it allows you time to uh, to get things right. And yes, Tony almost deleted the voicemail, and at the same time, the reason he almost deleted it but didn't delete it was Alfred. This does something you know, like we had a conversation. This sounds like a dumb idea, but Nobody else is going to do this uh, if they get money and they go off the <laughs> so At works, least we're going to be the only ones doing this dumb works, idea. <laughs> yeah, we're going to be the only ones doing this dumb idea. And then, you know, then you ask, like, is it that dumb? Right? So the, 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 the facts were that, you know, he had no, he, we knew that Nick could build a website. He was a webmaster. He designed mm-hmm. websites. Okay, check. He, we knew that there was a problem here. We didn't know about the market. He listed the market size, $40 billion, Five percent or two billion, or even a mail order. So, what is that? What is the conclusion from those facts? Okay, well, it's not that hard to extend that conclusion to be the internet should be bigger than mail order. At least as big. 
yeah, at least it's big or bigger or many of orders of magnitude bigger. So you believe that, then back to like, you need to build a company. You have a founder with an innovative idea. You need, you, you, you're missing a few pieces. So as you said, we went out and hired Nick Swimmer because we're missing shoe experience. Like I, Tony and I could like knew how to sort of because of link exchange drive traffic to a site. Right. Okay. Got that checked. Like we have a bunch of things checked, but we didn't have the shoe experience. And originally, the original idea we didn't need customer service experience or distribution yeah. because we were dropshipping. That evolved, so we needed more pieces to be filled in. But the company coming together has a lot to do with like making sure you have all those right pieces. I think that's what's so you know, I don't, for me at least, super fun about early stage investing is like you can't think about, you can't look at it and say like. Uh, judge it as if the pieces were together, because if the pieces were together, it would either be a public company or like you know it's never going to work. Yeah, you so need that, to you need to you know, well. You also you just need to have imagination. Yeah, you need to have imagination, and you also need to um, make sure that uh, you can dream with the entrepreneur. Like we often sort of talk about, like okay, can you see a world like this? This should the future be this way? The founders we like backing, like. Um, you know, Adia at House or Brian Chesky at Airbnb or Dropbox, they also just like, they see the world slightly differently than everyone else. And they view a problem, they, they feel that problem from a personal standpoint, and they just feel like the world has solved that problem incorrectly. They just gotten that wrong. Mm -hmm. And they're on a mission to go change that. And Nick was on a mission to change that. Tony was on a mission to change that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Even though, and I think this is what's also super cool about Zappos and the story, like, um, actually another one I had in here was mission you know, focused founders versus mercenary founders, even though Tony and, uh, I don't know, I'm guessing you probably weren't that passionate about shoes, but you were passionate about seeing this way that the market wasn't working and could work and that nobody else in the space was so focused on customer service that could really deliver, you know, well, happiness, as Tony puts it, uh, you know, to customers. Yeah, I think that the, before getting on to, um, mission versus mercenary founders. I think the one thing that was like clear was that e-commerce was going to have, was going to compete on price and was going to compete on um, selection. And those two things are hard for a startup to just compete on those two things because you don't have the bankroll to, to compete on price. And on day one, you're not going to have the widest selection. And so we needed another pillar. You could compete on those two, those two things later, mm -hmm. but that's why we're so focused on sort of putting on another layer and it was customer obsession and customer service. And both Tony and I were pretty passionate about customer service from a mission standpoint. You know, people ask this all the time, whether we back, you know, mission focus or mercenary founders, I think best founders are kind of both, mm -hmm. you know, it's like, they're not, they're not doing this as yeah. a charity <laughs> because otherwise they would start a nonprofit. Um, so they are in the, they yeah. are in the, in the entrepreneur space because they want to build a company. They well, want to build a business. There's also like, I mean, back to your days with pizza at Harvard, you know, Quincy House, like there's an element of you got to be a hustler to get this done, right? You have to like, be a hustler. You, you want to solve the problem. You want to do it in a different way. You have to differentiate. And most of the founders that are successful, they want to, they want to build an enterprise that exists much longer than, than, than themselves. And that requires making sure that the company has longevity, which means it has to have a sustainable business model. Yeah, and then I do think one of the you know themes that you have to do hard things that that yield some protection, some moats, and things that are hard that are just people don't want to do. And you know, kudos to Amazon for building a network of warehouses. Nobody wanted to build that. 
like, oh, let's do that. Or a network of server farms. If you were, if you, uh, if you asked in 1999 whether you put ten thousand dollars of your life savings in eBay or Amazon, I bet you most people in 1999 would say eBay. This elegant, no capital, like capital light, no distribution centers, no inventory model. It was just connecting to. You know, two people and the marketplace would take care of itself. They acquired Skype. Nice people cut. could chat with each other. Yeah, and, and I'm not making fun of eBay. They had lots of they have lots of issues that they need with trust and safety. They have to yeah. solve that. They have to solve payments, micro payments, right? Like yeah. these are small payments. That's why they had to go about you know sort of develop their own. They tried developing their own. They they acquired Billpoint and PayPal. Yeah, it was not an easy thing. But from an investor standpoint, investors seem to like these like high margin, like really like easy to explain business models and at the same time some of them the hardest things to replicate are the hard things that people do to build a real <laughs> mode around the business and amazon builds real modes yep well that's a great great way to close out uh close out the regular section of the show we're on to grading um alfred first i want to ask <laughs> do, question do, is, do you want to participate in this <laughs> you don't have to what is this grading thing I don't know. all right so we basically, you know, we, when we started the show, the whole notion that we had in mind was we want to figure out what are have been the most successful acquisitions in history and try and take them apart and reverse engineer and figure out how to start companies like that. And so we thought, well, there's got to be some axis on which we evaluate whether it was actually a, a good deal for the acquirer or not. And so we basically, you know, go through this whole process to try and figure out was that the best use of the acquirer's capital? And our, you know, A plus scenarios are like Apple you know, spending money on next and basically getting, you know, having a reverse acquisition happen where the company is reborn because of it. Um, or Instagram's another great example of like, are, are there A pluses Instagram? Right. right. Yeah. Um, and then th- there's other ones where we're like, actually that was a that was a terrible use of capital. Um, and then they're they're uh, uh, it kind of gives us a way to understand basically um, you know, given all the options on the table, should they have done this? And uh, um, usually they land in the B to C range. So that's the process. Well, I, I'm going to take a first stab. So uh, I think that um, on its own, Zappos was a great business. So it's not like they were were you know buying something that they'd have to integrate and and um, you know have really high costs of of um, of creating those synergies. That's not what it was about. It was about acquiring a, a very unique business and and one of the few large customer centric businesses that were not Amazon on the internet, um, and uh, and and continuing to grow that. Um, in some ways, a takeout because uh, Zappos was a very real threat. You know, expanding category by category the same way that that Amazon had. And you know, we didn't talk on the, on the show at all about um, how big it could have gotten from a category's perspective. But you know, if I'm Amazon, that's that's one of the main fears is that someone becomes the everything store before I do. Um, I think it's been a good business inside of Amazon. Uh, from what I can tell, which is extremely difficult because Amazon never breaks anything out, it seems to be growing a little bit more slowly than Amazon's own shoe business and definitely not as quickly as, uh, as AWS or even the um, um, Amazon marketplace uh, with, with third-party sellers. Um, so, you know, I, I think it's good. Uh, I'd, I'd go with B+. Um, but, you know, it, it's, it's a tough bar to get, a, get an A on the show. Tough part to get an A from Ben. <laughs> David? <sighs> well, <laughs> it's hard to it's hard to see this not being a good use of capital for Amazon. Like, um, both for the reasons you were saying, um, 
but also like, you know, preparing for the show, I think a bunch of people have made analogies to this almost being like a Berkshire Hathaway type acquisition of, um, you know, allowing Zappos, uh, to keep doing what it was doing free of all the financial constraints that had hampered you guys along the way. Um, and for Amazon, um, this was obviously a hugely important category to the company and to Jeff Bezos, um, to be able to enter that, stop losing the estimates are estimates are Amazon lost $150 million on endless.com. Stop the bleeding there, um, and be able to cross pollinate the knowledge to grow their own category. So, um, you know, sorry, Alfred, I, I don't think this is as transformative as Instagram, but, but this is a minus in my book. No comment from Alfred. <laughs> I think I know too much information. About that, so. <laughs> we can move on. <laughs> uh, how about uh, how about car What you got, Ben? Uh, last week, uh, I listened to Andrew Mason as a guest on Recode Decode with with Kara Swisher, um, and it is always refreshing to hear that guy um, um, on any form of media, especially in an interview format. So uh, so straightforward, so, so honest. Uh, for listeners who, who don't know, Andrew Mason is the um, founder of Groupon and uh, has since started a couple of other companies, and he was on talking about his, his new company, um, which is in the audio editing space, so it obviously was interesting to, to us here at Acquired. Um, but uh, there's so much revisionist history in our industry, and... and um, legend and lore that get started and you just never hear that sort of thing out of andrew's mouth it's mostly like no we didn't know what we were doing yes we figured it out yes it was really hard uh no maybe i shouldn't have been the person to do it yes that's why i was fired i mean there's just very it's just a refreshing take so um really enjoyed it and really enjoyed hearing about some of the new stuff he's up to Nice. Um, mine is, uh, actually, I, I didn't think there was any way it was going to be related to the episode, but as so often happens, carve-outs end up, uh, we find some way to relate them. Um, Justin O'Byrne uh, published this great long uh, piece on his blog um, called Google Maps Moat, the Google Maps Moat. Um, and he's a, uh, I think, designer uh, in the map space. I believe he worked for Apple Maps for a while. Um, and it's just a piece of like all of the the culmination of all of the hard things that Google has done in maps for the last 10 years um, and the lead that they have because of it over Apple and Nokia and everyone else um, in the space. Uh, and it, it really detailed breaks out like product changes month by month over years um, across all the products in the space. Um, really just a brilliant analysis um, and uh, very worth reading on what makes a moat in the consumer business. I'll second that. That piece was incredible. That was, yeah. and it's got these like great side by side comparisons and animated gifs where you can see like he's been taking the same screenshot year after year for like seven years or something, and you can see the the complexity on each of these maps grow over time. And he annotates what they did to do that. It's just it's so cool, even to just scroll through. Yeah, I, I agree as well. That was a great piece. Yeah, for me, I'm, I'm trying to I'm trying to do some hard things and and read um, thick books. So. <laughs> I'm reading through two books by Walter Isaacson. Uh, one is about Ben Franklin, the other about Albert Einstein. I just think both of those men were fascinating people and have contributed lots to our society. And they're just they were they were prolific in the work that they did. They were also interested in many many different things. Um, kind of think about Albert Einstein as a you know physics genius, but he also loved playing playing music and, and the violin and. Franklin was, you know, as a publisher, he obviously was one of the founding fathers and, and published a lot of papers, but he was also into music and other things. And I think both both people sort of demonstrate that having a fertile curiosity about many different areas um, 
actually allows you to do whatever you believe your day job to be better. Um, another fascinating person, I hope Walter like writes a book about um, Madame Curry because I think she's also a fascinating character. Definitely. He's a great writer. Well, thank you, Alfred, for you. joining us, us. <laughs> putting up with us, uh, reliving your trash compactor days. Yeah, Alfred, uh, where can our guests find you on the internet? Oh, they can find me. I, I'm, I'm just, my, my email is lynn at sequoiacap.com. You can find me on the uh, Sequoia website, sequoiacap.com. So that's where I hang out. Awesome. This is a great time to tell you about one of our very favorite companies, Crusoe. So Crusoe, as listeners know by now, is a clean compute cloud provider specifically built for AI workloads. NVIDIA is one of their major partners, and literally Crusoe's data centers are nothing but racks and racks of A100s and H100s. And because Crusoe's cloud is purpose-built for AI and run on wasted, stranded, or clean energy, they can provide significantly better performance per dollar than traditional cloud providers. Yes, we talked about that on our ACQ2 episode with Crusoe CEO Chase Lockmiller. The other element that makes Crusoe special is the environmental angle. Crusoe, of course, locates their data centers at stranded energy sites. So think oil flares, wind farms that can't use all the energy they generate, etc., and uses that power that would otherwise be wasted to run your AI workloads instead. Yep. Obviously, it's a huge benefit for the environment and for customers on costs since Crusoe doesn't rely on the energy grid. Energy is the second largest cost of running AI after, of course, the price you pay NVIDIA for the chips. And these lower energy costs get passed on to customers. It's super cool that they can put their data centers out there in these remote locations where, quote unquote, energy happens, as opposed to the other hyperscalers such as AWS and Google and Azure, who need to build their data centers close to major traffic hubs where the internet happens because they are doing everything in their clouds. Yep. If you, your company, or your portfolio companies would like to use the lower cost and more performant infrastructure for your AI workloads, go to crusocloud.com slash acquired, that's C-R-U-S-O-E cloud.com slash acquired, or click the link in the show notes. Listeners, thank you for listening. As always, if you are new to the show, you can subscribe from your favorite podcast client. We're now in in uh, SoundCloud and uh, Spotify as well. And at acquired.fm, you can come join us and 1,100 other people in the Acquired Slack. So uh, have a great day, everyone.